Well, good morning. I'm Jonathan, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And as Ethan said, we're finishing up a series this week. Pastor Dan will be here next week to start a new series that I'm excited about, but uh, glad you're here this morning. As Ethan said, we've been talking about honest-to-God prayers, real people with real problems crying out to God in real prayer, uh, talking to him. And we've concluded that real prayer is talking honestly with God in the context of a relationship with him. And see, we can get caught up in wondering about right words and right positions and right times and, and right formulas for approaching God. And when we do, our prayer life can become mechanical and measured, mundane, and, and just simply a, a means to an end. But we can simply talk to him God wants us to to simply talk to him in the context of a loving father-child relationship. The first week we looked at Elijah. Elijah cried out in discouragement and God responded by, by providing for our needs. And we realized that our greatest need in approaching God in prayer is to know more of God and to let God have more of us. Then we looked at King Hezekiah who cried out to God in desperation and God heard his prayer and delivered the nation from imminent danger. And we learned that our greatest priority is for God's honor so that the world might know him. That it's not about me, it's about him. And so through our victories and successes and our circumstances and our difficulties, our greatest desire is that our lives would make Jesus make sense. We saw last week that the wicked and perverse king Manasseh turned back to God and and cried out in, in his own brokenness over his sin, his failed leadership. And God responded with his incomprehensible mercy and grace. And we learned that our greatest attitude in prayer is to approach God in humility. And in response to his extravagant grace to approach God with confidence in Jesus' name, recognizing him for who he really is and what I really am. Out of all this, we've been challenged to see prayer in a different way. As we're seeing it less as asking about, asking about something or asking for something and more about enjoying our creator, enjoying our heavenly father, enjoying someone. And so as I get to know God better and I learn to trust his intentions for me, my heart begins to reflect his heart and I begin to ask what we both want. And so our prayers are an overflow of our relationship we have with God. A God who wants us to live the life he's created and intended for us. And all of this reminds me of a a prayer that was found in a Confederate soldier's jacket on the battlefield at Devil's Den in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. They found in his jacket this piece of of crumpled up old paper and on it he had written these thoughts. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. 
I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. You know, as I hear those words, I I hear a man who learned what it means to follow God's word, to recall God's character, to trust God's promises as a result of seeing God answer his prayers in some unique and different ways. This morning, we're going to look at another man who I think understood these things. And so this morning, you can look at the screen or you can turn to your Bible or your device. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 32. Now, Jeremiah is found in the the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. It's found after Psalms and Proverbs, and it's sandwiched between Isaiah and the books of Lamentation and Ezekiel. But this morning, we're going to be looking at just a small slice of the prophet's life, a life made complicated by complicated circumstances. And see, what we learn from Jeremiah is that despite not knowing what's going on in our lives, Despite that, we can always trust God's promises. And if we can trust God's promises and trust who he is, it will affect the way that we talk to him. But first of all, I want you to imagine with me that um, you get a phone call from a realtor and, and he's all excited. He's like, I've got an opportunity of a lifetime for you. I've got this, this luxury hotel that's, that's built on a mountainside. It's beautiful, great condition. It's worth about $20 million. I'm going to give it to you for $10,000. They're like, all right. He says, oh, by the way, it's situated on a hill in North Korea. (laughs) And you'd be like, wait a second, that's a game changer, right? (laughs) With all of the the things going on between between the U.S. and North Korea right now, we would, most of us would be sensible enough to say, no way. That's a dumb deal. But imagine buying a piece of property that's already under enemy control. In fact, the whole nation is on the verge of being overthrown by your enemy. It would be a pretty dumb investment to buy a piece of property like that. And yet that's exactly what God asked the prophet of Jeremiah to do. You see, in the southern kingdom of Judah, after kings Hezekiah and Manasseh, there were more bad kings than good. And the the nation, the kingdom, had shown signs of revival, but the reality was the core of the nation was rotted. Nothing could be done to reverse the effects. They were in continuous rebellion against the Lord and his word. And so just like the northern kingdom of Israel, a hundred years earlier, the kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem were under siege. And they're on the brink of falling to the Babylonian Empire. And it's during this time that God's prophet, Jeremiah, (laughs) came preaching to the current king, King Zedekiah, uh, the king of Judah. And his message was one of judgment, as one of doom. Zedekiah didn't want to hear about judgment, and so he has Jeremiah locked in the palace prison. You see, Zedekiah refused to hear what God was speaking through Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah's message was that Zedekiah was going to lose his kingdom. The the Babylonians would defeat Israel and, and Judah, and many of the people of Judah would be killed and led into captivity, including the king. And then Jeremiah ends with the message, so (laughs) you're not going to succeed. This isn't going to work out for you. And Zedekiah didn't want to hear that message, so he locked him away. But it was the future of Judah. Jeremiah knew it, and there was nothing he could do about it because the people wouldn't hear God's word. They were in full rebellion against God and refused to listen, but it didn't stop Jeremiah. In fact, we find Jeremiah preaching God's word of impending doom from a prison cell. (laughs) So while he's in prison with the sound of the enemy army just outside the city walls, Jeremiah's cousin comes to visit, and and he has an offer for, for Jeremiah, and he offers him the family right of redemption, the purchase of a piece of property which was already under enemy occupation. We can only guess his cousin's motives, but clearly he wanted the cash out of a hopeless situation. You see, during the last days of the city of Jerusalem, before the fall, the bottom had fallen out, had fallen out of the, <clears throat> the housing market. Entire houses and palaces were, were torn down so they could use the rubble to, to, to build up the walls, to shore up the walls of the city, to, to try to keep the Babylonian army from, from coming through their walls and attacking the city. You see, it was the worst possible time to buy a piece of land. The city's under siege, the, econ- the economy had tanked, and the prophet was in prison. But what did Jeremiah do? We read at the end of verse 8, I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field from my cousin, and I weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. And so Jeremiah looks over the terms of the contract. He signs the deed, has it notarized, makes sure that it's put in a place where it will be secure. God told Jeremiah to purchase the land, and Jeremiah obeyed. But then he starts to get confused. (laughs) <laughs> and he's like, oh, did I just do something really stupid? <laughs> Had he done something dumb? If, if God was going to overthrow Judah by the Babylonians, as I've been preaching, then, then why has God told me to buy this farm? <laughs> well, after the transaction was completed, Jeremiah prayed, and his prayer teaches us some lessons to pray by faith in a bewildering situation. And I think this morning, most of us can identify with a Jeremiah. Most of us can identify with something that being in a confusing, seemingly hopeless situation. If we're, if we're not in it in the moment, then we've been there and, and we will be again. And, and I don't know what you might be facing today, whether it's a financial crisis or a broken relationship or a problem that seems insurmountable a health issue, or maybe a difficult decision. While Jeremiah's response to the Lord may not give you all the answers you want or need, it will certainly give you the strength and perspective to get through it. And the first thing we learn from Jeremiah's circumstances is that even when life seems confusing, follow God's word. But in order to really 
get the idea of what Jeremiah is thinking and feeling as he prays, we need to understand a little bit more about the prophet. You see, Jeremiah's service to the Lord was probably one of the most difficult, demanding, discouraging of any of the prophets. And yet he continued to follow God's word. Jeremiah was a a teenager. He was 17 years old when God came to him and and asked him to do a very difficult thing. And we read in Jeremiah chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah responded, alas, sovereign Lord, I I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. I'm, I'm just a teenager. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint over you nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear out, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And so I want you to to think about this and think about, put yourself in, in Jeremiah's sandals for a moment. Imagine how you would feel if no one listened to you and and persecution hounded your every step. In fact, Jeremiah was known as a weeping prophet because he cries tears of sadness, not only because he knew what was going to happen to the nation, but no matter how hard he tried, the people wouldn't listen. God had forbidden him to marry or have children, and his friends had turned their backs on him. So along with the burden of a very difficult message, he had to feel very lonely. But God knew that this was the best course because he went on to tell Jeremiah the horrible conditions that would happen in his lifetime. Well, Jeremiah's ministry covered over 40 years, and during all this time, the prophet never once saw any signs of success in his ministry. This message was one of rebuke and reform, and the people never followed, the people never listened, the people never obeyed him. As we look at other prophets, other prophets saw at least a little bit of impact from their message upon the nation, but not Jeremiah. He was called to a ministry of failure, and yet he was enabled to keep going for 40 long years and to be faithful to God and to accomplish God's purpose, to preach God's word to a decayed nation. Well, the second thing that happened, the second difficult command that God gave Jeremiah was to spend his money to buy this farm that was already occupied by the enemy. You know, it seemed like an insane thing to do. At any moment, the country was going over. The Babylonians had surrounded the city. The siege mounds had had almost reached the top of the wall. And any day now, they would come sweeping into the city. And it's ridiculous. It's crazy. (laughs) And yet, here's Jeremiah in prison buying a farm. you know what? He wasn't crazy. He was being obedient to God's difficult command. You see, God had had told him to buy this land and go through all the proper legal proceedings as a prophetic drama to emphasize to the people of God that I will keep my gracious promise to restore you to myself. 
You see, one of the things they couldn't see or understand was that that God wasn't done with them. We read in verse 15, for this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. In fact, in the previous chapter, God had promised and, and Jeremiah had proclaimed that the days were coming when God would write his laws on their heart and forgive their sin and they will be his people and he will be their God. As we think about this whole thing of, of buying property, you know, why do we buy property in the first place? We buy property because it's an investment in the future. We have plans for the future. Maybe we're going to build a home or start a business or make the most of its resources or make an investment in the future. But Jeremiah is buying a piece of land that he'll probably never see. He'll never step a foot on that property. But it was a statement of faith in God's word, God's character, and God's promises. See, I I love... I love the passage that Jeremiah writes in another book called Lamentations. I love it because Jeremiah is honest to God, but he also has perspective. And it reminds us that although Jeremiah felt like a failure and was given extremely difficult tasks, his books, his, the things that he wrote down for us to read today have brought comfort and perspective to millions of people throughout all the centuries. He says, I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I have hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. He's very honestly expressing his soul to God. But he doesn't end there. Because it goes on and says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I do have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And I say to myself, The Lord is my portion. Therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is Good to wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. You see, by faith, Jeremiah was making an investment in God's promises. Jeremiah's meticulous care for the legal documents was an affirmation that Jeremiah knew he could take God at his word. He wouldn't live to see the day that God's people would take back their inheritance, but he made sure the documents were in order, that they were secure to prove that God had been true to his word. You see, even when life seems confusing, we can take God at his word and follow him in obedience. Do we have faith to act on God's promises, even if some of them won't be fulfilled in our lifetime? Do we have faith to act on what God has told us in his word? Even though we may not see them fulfilled till the end of history. Are we willing to give our lives to things that may not make sense to us now? Recently, I read an article about a man who had become a medical missionary in 1912 to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the heart of Africa. 
He taught them the Bible. He, he taught children how to read and write. He emphasized the need for education and he told them Bible stories. He wanted to get the gospel to the remote parts of the jungle. But after 17 years of faithfully serving and ministering among the Yanzi tribe, he returned to the U.S. dejected, disheartened, and discouraged. After 17 years, he felt like a failure. He believed he had failed to make any significant impact for Christ. And so he returned home and died nine years later. But here's the amazing part of the story. In 2010, 88 years later, a team of missionaries traveled to this region and, and they had to take planes and they had to take jeeps and they had to find a canoe to cross the river and then backpack another 10 miles into the deepest, darkest parts of the jungle. But when they got there, what they found was amazing. They found a vast network of reproducing churches spread across that dense jungle. You see, they found out that in the 1980s, a church building that the tribe had built to accommodate over a thousand worshipers had become overcrowded. It was too small. And it ignited a church planting movement that would spread out over 34 miles. <laughs> you see, Dr. Leslie's goal had been to spread the gospel to people without Jesus. And he did it faithfully for 17 years and he didn't see the fruit and, and, he, and, and he felt like a failure. But what he didn't know was that his faithfulness in difficult times was the catalyst God used to ignite a gospel-centered movement deep in the heart of Africa. You see, as followers of Jesus, we make these kinds of decisions every day. We do strange things and we run into messes because we trust God at his word. We trust his promises. And so some followers of Jesus decide to go the distant and strange places and they leave behind family and friends and the conveniences of American culture. Why? Why would they do that? They do it because they want to follow God and take him at his word, taking the good news of Jesus, the gospel here, there, and everywhere to the uttermost parts of the earth, and they believe his promise, I will be with you. You see, some followers of Jesus move into the city on purpose. They, some followers of Jesus feel the, feed the homeless or tutor the disadvantaged. Others reach across economic and, and ethnic and cultural barriers to form friendships. Some followers of Jesus give up an evening each week to invest in the lives of others relationally, intentionally, exponentially, making and developing followers of Jesus who will know it, live it, and give it away. Some followers of Jesus purposely place themselves in messy places and in messy situations in order, Jesus, in order to make Jesus make sense to people who need him. Why? Why inconvenience myself? Why take the risk? Why do things that, that just make life kind of confusing? Because we believe what God says about himself. We believe his promises. We believe it when he says, I will be with you. But the truth is, living in faith and following God, God's word can still be difficult. 
And as soon as Jeremiah bought that property, that farm, he started to have second thoughts. But I love what he did here because it's something we all need to do, and that is when we're confused, he went to the Lord in prayer. And he cried out from his soul the prayer for the bewildered. It's interesting then that his prayer begins not with a word, but with a... It's a cry from the soul. When Jeremiah found himself in crisis, not knowing what to do, worried about the future, being attacked by enemies, his soul cried out to God. I sometimes find myself going to God, and I'm sure you do too, with just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what God is doing or, or, or what. And so I'm so glad that the Bible addresses this. And, and, the, and Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. You see, when all that comes out is a... God knows what's in your heart. The Holy Spirit translates the cries of our soul, turning our confusion and our frustration and our exasperation into intercession, into prayer. Then Jeremiah quickly turns his thoughts to what he knew to be true about God, and even when life gets tough, recall God's character. And he cries out to God, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands but bring the punishment for the parents' sins and the laps of their children after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to the ways of all mankind. You reward each person according to their conduct and as their deeds deserve. And then he goes on to recount God's power and faithfulness in delivering his people from Egypt. And he ends then the prayer in this very honest way. We read in verse 24, see how the siege ramps are built up to take the city. He's looking at his present circumstances and giving it to God. Because of the sword, famine, and plague, the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened, as you now see. And though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. <laughs> and that's where his prayer ends. And it's as, if, it's as if he's saying, God, I know who you are. <laughs> I know you're faithful. You are sovereign. You are the Lord Almighty. You've delivered in the past. You'll deliver in the present. But now I'm in the thick of this mess and you want me to do What? You see, it's a prayer mixed with understanding and this confusion. And, and throughout Jeremiah's prayer, we see a faith, though, that believes that God is able, a belief, a faith that believes that God is gracious, and a faith that believes that God is just. 
This morning, for time's sake, I, I just want to zero in on a faith that believes God is able. God is able is simply another way of saying God is all-powerful. His power is infinite and unlimited. God has the power to do all he wills to do. He, is, he has both the resources and the ability to work his will in every circumstance. He is able. And so Jeremiah prays, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Well, there's at least two implications to believing that nothing is too hard for him. Number one, nothing can stop God from fulfilling his plan and his purpose. There's no power in all the created universe to stop the creator or obstruct the plans. No, not evil men, not, not natural catastrophe, not fate or luck or chance, not human error, not even Satan himself can hinder God's plan and God's purpose. Nothing can stop him from fulfilling his plan and purpose. Secondly, what God starts, he always finishes. It's an amazing thought because we live in a world where some of our best work goes unfinished. Rembrandt, Michelangelo, Hemingway, Wright, Edison, Da Vinci, all left behind unfinished paintings, unfinished manuscripts, plans for buildings that were never built. But when God starts to do something, he stays with the job until it's completed. There's never a divine power failure, never a blackout, a brownout, or a meltdown. When God begins a good work in a person's life, he won't abandon that work. It's an amazing and comforting truth when Paul writes, and I am certain, no shadow of a doubt, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. You see, when we're able to recall the truth of God's power and presence, it gives amazing confidence to our prayers. That's why in Psalm 23 we read, I will fear no evil for you are with me. If God is walking with me, if God is walking by my side, I have nothing to fear. You see, God is able is a truth that gives us incredible confidence and comfort. The all-powerful God is with me. The nothing is too difficult for you, God, is with me. And when I talk to God, especially when life gets tough, it's important to recall who I'm talking to. You add to, you add to this, his faithfulness, you add to his power, his grace, his compassion, his love, his faithfulness, his, his holiness, his perfection, his mercy, his grace. And I can trust him to do what he says and I will have the faith to follow his word. Again, let's, let's just be honest. <laughs> we can say these things, we can believe them, you can hear them preached, I can preach them, we can read them, we can, we can say yes. <laughs> but it doesn't make life any easier. We lived in a messed up world, so we hear objections to God's character and power that can crack holes in our faith if we don't know how to respond. The objection goes something like this. If God is all-powerful, why is there so much suffering in the world? 
Why do buses crash or tornadoes destroy homes? Why does God allow evil nations to kill innocent people? Why is there so much disease? Why do good people die of cancer? Why doesn't God stop the suffering in the world? And you see, in a fallen, messed up world, it's a very fair question. Most of us have asked questions like this. Because we often see and sometimes experiences tragedies and catastrophe and death as part of this world, and it hurts. And we struggle. But it's also an important question because it drives us back to the very character of God. I mean, what kind of God do we believe in? See, if God is not able... And there are things that, that, in fact, are impossible for him. Can he be trusted? Should he be followed? There's a lot of things to be said here. This is a sermon series in and of itself. There's books written about this. But in the end, we have to rest our faith on the goodness and faithfulness of our God. And you see, after all, it's, this isn't the best world. And while this isn't the best world, this is a messed up world, it is the best way to the best possible world. And Jesus made that possible. You see, if our God is good, if he cares for us, then we can believe he has all power even in the face of sickness and suffering and death. And so when we're faced with difficulties and questions like these in our own lives, there's, there's something we have to understand. It's something that's so critical to understand and that it matters where you start. You see, if you start with your trials and try the reason back to God, you're probably not going to make it. Start with lung cancer and, and it can be hard to find God. Start with divorce and it can be hard to find God. Start with, with violence and abuse and victimization and it's hard to find God. He's there, but he's hard to see when you start with your own difficulty and you become blinded by your own hurt and your own sorrow and your own struggle. You see, it matters where you start. Start with God and then reason from what you know about God back to your trials. I think that's what we see here in Jeremiah's prayer. He cries out to God with a sigh, with a groan, because his difficulties are right there on the surface. But then he quickly gets his eyes and his heart and his mind focused on God's power, God's faithfulness, God's goodness. And it's only then that he asks the question, but by this time, it's been filtered through what he knows to be true about God, and he's ready to respond to God's word to him. You see, when we start with what we know to be true about God, it, it puts everything else in perspective. It's been said, don't doubt in the dark what you know to be true in the light. And it's true, it's why Paul could write, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, as long as you start with what you see around you, 
you're going to have a hard time finding God in the darkest moments of your life. But if you start with God and a faith in God, he will give you perspective and the strength and the confidence to get through it. The final part of Jeremiah's prayer concerned his situation. But it's interesting that he spent more time recalling God's character and his faithfulness than he talked about his problem. In fact, in this prayer, he never really ends up asking for anything. In fact, it seems that he runs out of prayer before he even figures out what to pray for. (laughs) The Lord's response, he reminds Jeremiah what he's prayed, and he turns it into a rhetorical question. In verse 26, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? In other words, Jeremiah, yeah, you've, you've got the right God. I know it's confusing and the times feel hopeless, but trust me, I know what I'm doing. You see, even when life feels hopeless, trust God's promises. Jeremiah got confused and wondered how God could put it all together, the the difficulties of the present and the promises of the future. Yet in his prayer, he acknowledges that everything God said would happen, happened. He can trust God's promises because God is faithful. As we look at Jeremiah's life, we realize, man, (laughs) he had a difficult life a frustrating ministry. He had faithfully preached for years, but no one listened. Instead, he suffered persecution and imprisonment, and he was on the brink of witnessing this inexpressible horror as the Babylonians would pour into Jerusalem. They would burn it and the temple to the ground, slaughter many of its inhabitants, and take the others into captivity. But the God who delivered his people into the hands of the Babylonians also promised Jeremiah that he would gather them out of the lands where he had driven them and he would bring them back to Jerusalem and he would bring them back to himself. That he would restore his relationship with him with, through a Messiah, deliver Jesus. And Jesus would offer them forgiveness and life. And one day, still future, he will gather them to to himself and they will serve him and they will rule with him. And they will become all that God has intended for his people. And he says, and they will be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one purpose to worship me forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. But it's not... As a promise for them, but there's also a promise for us too. The promise of God is that one day, because Jesus paid the debt of my sin, when we place our lives and faith in him, we are the recipients of his gracious promise in Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. 
You see, all the promises to God's people are summed up in this. I will be your God. The beauty of heaven is the presence of God and our relationship with our creator, our relationship with him. Jeremiah never lived to see these promises fulfilled. But because he believed in a faithful God who would fulfill all of his promises to his people, Jeremiah could obey God's difficult commands and trust that God could do the humanly impossible. And through Jeremiah's prayer in this difficult and confusing situation, God granted him the confidence to stand firm and the understanding he needed to endure. See, the life we live as we follow Jesus, it doesn't promise to be easy or problem-free. So when life seems confusing, when life gets tough, when life feels hopeless, don't neglect what God has asked of you. Start with prayer as a first response, not a last, not a last resort. Recall his character and trust and act on his promises. For he is good, he is faithful, and he is able. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who is able. Or there's so many things in this life where we hit a, we hit a wall and all we can do is God. Father, I thank you that you hear our hearts. Thank you that you hear our thoughts. You know the cry of our soul. Father, thank you that we have faith in a God who is able, a God who is willing. A God who so loved the world that He gave His Son for me, for us. Father, I thank you that we can trust you as we, we run into messes and messy situations and, and things that we're unsure about and uncertainty and, and wondering, what, what do I do? What will come of this? And Lord, when we enter into those times, Lord, we know that all your promises are yes and amen that all your promises are true, that you are faithful, you are good, you are able. And so Father, increase our faith as we increase our understanding of who you are. And we continue to cry out, God, more of you, less of me, help me to know you that I might make you known through my circumstances, my life, and point people to Jesus. Father, I thank you that even though we may not experience them in this lifetime, until the end of history, Lord, we know that you are true to your word. Father, thank you for loving us so much. Love you too. In Jesus' name.